Last time we spoke about the Allied Kokoda Track Offensive. Because of the escalations on Guadalcanal, the Japanese elected to devote the lion's share of resources towards Starvation Island rather than Green Hell. This led the Japanese forces of General Hori to be forced to perform the same fighting withdrawal the Allies had made prior against them. Hori's men lost countless ground that they had previously earned with blood, sweat, and tears. Things were going very south for the South Seas Detachment. Back in Guadalcanal, the Japanese had recently lost the naval battle of Cape Esperance, but they followed this up with an incredible bombardment of Henderson Field, smashing it with over 937 shells from battleships Congo and Haruna alone. The Cactus Air Force was in shambles. The Marine defensive perimeter was greatly hurt. Could the Americans survive another Japanese thrust this time around? This episode is the battle for Henderson Field. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just wanted to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals is an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast, Over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, narrated and written by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I'm just now releasing an entire series in collaboration with Dave Holland from Guadalcanal Walking a Battlefield on the many medals of honor earned at Guadalcanal some of which were earned in the very episode you're about to listen to. So go give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Back on October the 14th, the Japanese unleashed one of the most violent and well-coordinated naval bombardments upon Henderson Field up to date. The IGN launched another high-speed convoy, consisting of six fast transport vessels, each carrying 68 landing crafts, 4,500 troops, and strong anti-aircraft guns. Their escorts were eight destroyers, and at 6.30 p.m., 15-centimeter howitzers began to fire shells upon Henderson Field. The culprit was the 1st Battery, 4th Field Heavy Artillery Regiment. Squatting beneath some camouflage, just west of the Matanikau, 2.5 miles southwest of Kokomona, Vandegrift's men knew that this bombardment after the usual air raid meant something new was afoot. Vandegrift ordered a general alert, and they certainly would be alert that night. Down from the north came Rear Admiral Takeo Karita, leading battleships Congo and Haruna, each holding 18 14-inch guns. Their escort were nine destroyers and a light cruiser. At 1.30 a.m., the Marines could hear float planes, which soon dropped flares upon the area. Then at 1.33 a.m., at a range of almost 30,000 yards, the Congo and Haruna began to fire salvos. One after another, American planes, ammunition, gasoline dumps, and other materials were turned into burning wreckage. Marines crouched for their lives within a 14-square-mile area, but about a third of it received the bulk of Congo and Haruna's shells, making it the most concentrated shelling in history in terms of rapid saturation of an area. Martin Clemens noted, The ground shook with the most awful convulsions. Vandegrift was flung to the floor by a near miss and would later reflect, Until someone has experienced naval or artillery shelling or aerial bombardment, he cannot easily grasp a sensation compounded of frustration, helplessness, fear, and in the case of close hits, shock. A bit of a lull occurred at 2.13 a.m., but the Japanese resumed fire, and despite American torpedo boats trying to make a desperate attack on the fleet, the Japanese would continue to fire until around 3 a.m. when they finally retired. The bombardment was a grand total of 973 shells from two battleships. Japanese air raids and the howitzers near the Matanikau both aided in making Henderson Field unusable. Virtually all aviation gasoline was burned. The Cactus Air Force was smashed 
only seven of the 39 Dauntless were operational. While the fighter strip fared much better, 24 out of 42 Wildcats remained operational, and 4 P-40s and 2 P-39s. Incredibly, the high explosive shells killed only 41 men of the 20,000 present. For the newly arrived 164th Infantry, the bombardment was a baptism under fire, and they would lose three men. On October the 14th, Admiral Yamamoto declared that American aircraft on Guadalcanal had been suppressed, and he ordered his naval forces to head south and destroy the U.S. fleet. Vandegrift sent word out, Urgently necessary, this force receive maximum support of air and surface units. Absolutely essential aviation gas be flown here continuously. However, the only operational carrier was the USS Hornet now, who was no match for the entire combined fleet. Syncpack sent word back. Our position is not favorable to prevent a major enemy landing. Admiral Fitch was the only man who had heard Vandegrift's cry for help and could do something about it. He ordered all 17 available Dauntless on Espiro de Santo to fly for Guadalcanal alongside 21 Wildcats. These planes would be useless without fuel, so Fitch organized an airlift with the Army and Marine Douglas transports to provide the gas that they needed. Over on Rabal, General Miyazaki, the Chief of Staff of the 17th Army, wrote in his diary on October the 15th, The arrow has already left the bow. General Hayakitake would be able to launch a major offensive to take Guadalcanal. Thus, the Cactus Air Force was crippled, and the airfields at Henderson were completely smashed. The Americans managed to smash the IGN transports Sasago, Asumasan, and the Kyushu Maru, but now the Japanese forces on Guadalcanal had been bolstered to 20,000 men. The Japanese had brought 9,091 soldiers, 560 SNLF Marines, 66 artillery pieces and howitzers, 12 towing vehicles, and 160 tons of provisions. General Hayakatake had finally evened out the odds against the 23,000 Americans on Starvation Island and was in a perfect position to launch an offensive to finally recapture Henderson Field. General Vandegrift estimated to his superiors the Japanese convoy had landed another 10,000 troops, bringing them to an overall strength of around 15,000 or so. He acknowledged while there were more Americans on the island than Japanese, Half of them were in no condition to make a protracted operation. Thus, Vandegrift identified two urgent steps necessary to assure the survival of his command. Number one, to secure control of the sea adjacent to Guadalcanal. And number two, to reinforce the garrison by at least one division. Given these were met, offensive operations could be performed. The shocking IGN naval bombardment resulted in the authorization for 50 Army Air Force fighters to come to the South Pacific, and General Marshall gave the order for the 25th Division to be shipped over. Admiral Yamamoto reached into his bag of tricks to find another way to smash the Americans on Guadalcanal, this time in the form of Carrier Division 2. The Junio and Hio came bearing an airstrike on October the 17th, they sent 18 Zeros and 18 Kates towards Lunga Point at 7.20 a.m. However, the Americans had broken some of Yamamoto's messages and they knew of the attack. Eight Wildcats met the wave, resulting in one Wildcat being shot down, but at the cost of seven Kates and one Zero for the Japanese. When the raid reached Henderson Field at 1.15, no more American aircraft were available to thwart them. Nonetheless, anti-aircraft fire took down two Zeros and another Kate. Vandegrift would also ask for a destroyer naval bombardment for the IGN convoy landing area, resulting in the USS Aaron Ward and Lardner firing 1,925 5-inch shells over the area on October the 17th. Admiral Gormley began to complain he lacked the necessary resources to maintain his sector. My forces are totally inadequate to meet the situation. Admiral Nimitz had already exhausted the material assistance he could give Gormley's command, so he held a meeting with his staff on October the 15th. Admiral Nimitz brought up what he believed to be the greatest obstacle to the American success in the Solomons, that of leadership. 
Gormley, he said, was an intelligent and dedicated officer, but was he tough enough to face the coming crisis and could he inspire the men? The staff all answered unanimously, no. Nimitz made the decision to replace Gormley with the recently just off the sick list, Vice Admiral William Halsley. Admiral King approved of the decision as well. Both Nimitz and King would later attribute much of Gormley's command problems due to his physical condition. He was suffering from abscessed teeth. Admiral Gormley also had a very unhealthy way of dealing with his command. He would often confine himself for months on his flagship, denying himself recreation or exercise while he worked endless hours in a sweatbox of an office. On October the 18th, Halsey arrived at Nomea, aboard his flagship, the USS Enterprise, with a sealed envelope. When he opened that envelope, he found orders to take command of the South Pacific area and the South Pacific forces. He proclaimed, Jesus Christ and General Jackson, this is the hottest potato they have ever handed me. Halsey held some regrets. Gormley was a friend of his for over 40 years. Halsey was 60 years old, a distinguished admiral, who had experience commanding destroyers and aircraft carriers. He was of medium height, he had broad shoulders, and a barrel chest giving him a very strong presence. He was described to have, quote, a wide mouth held tight and turned down at the corners, and exceedingly bushy eyebrows gave his face in a grizzled sea dog kind of way, an appearance of good humor. Halsley immediately set to work. One of the first things he did was he canceled the Nadini operation, something Gormley should have done weeks before. He also ordered henceforth that all naval officers in the South Pacific would remove their ties from their tropical uniforms. It sounds silly, but it was more than just beating the heat. He wanted to evoke a brawler look. Something to symbolize that they were ready to fight. By October the 20th, Americans of all ranks on Guadalcanal were asking two questions. Where were all those thousands of Japanese that had just landed, and when would they attack? Well, back over at the 17th Army HQ, they were planning for an offensive. But this time, they decided it must be simple, concentrated, and quick. Many amongst their ranks, however, disagreed on the axis of the attack. Colonel Matsumoto, the operations officer of the 2nd Division, advocated for a coastal area, while Colonel Tsuiji of the 17th Army wanted to go over some heights further inland. Well, the first 10 days of October saw many twists and turns for the planning. For one thing, the IGN notified the IGA that the Americans were constructing an airfield at Coley Point, around 8 miles east of Lunga Point. Thus, the 17th Army added Coley Point as a vital target. Now what did the Japanese do best? Making plans more and more complicated, of course. And by adding Koli Point to their growing list of objectives, they were doing just that. Now they sought to hit the east bank of the Matanikau as the primary objective. IGA General HQ believed one marine division was on the island, roughly 10,000 men. They could not be any more wrong, of course for there was 23,088 Americans on Guadalcanal by late October, adding to this another 4,639 on Tulagi. Now General Haikatake reached the island back on October the 10th, and he discovered immediately that five 600-man infantry battalions forming the Ichiki and Kawaguchi command barely formed the numerical strength of one now. Of the five battalions of the 2nd Division, they had basically shriveled to a third strength. Serviceable artillery was two field and two mountain pieces of 7mm alongside four 150mm howitzers. Thus, the day after landing, General Haikatake ordered the infantry group HQ of the 38th Division and the 228th Regiment to come to Guadalcanal. However, more men being brought to the island would not make up for their lack in firepower and ammunition. Simply put, their artillery situation was shit. The IGA 2nd Division Chief of Staff, Colonel Tamioki, and the Operations Officer, Colonel Matsumoto, made their way to an observational post on Mount Austin. From there, they looked at Henderson Field, 
and they reported back that they believed Guadalcanal's interior was more accessible than everyone had supposed. I guess the multiple groups of Japanese getting lost in the jungle didn't mean much to them. Regardless, based on their intel, the Japanese planners recast the attack plan to feature some attacks on the southern part of the American defense perimeter and a surprise attack on what they believed would be an undefended American rear. Colonel Kanuma presented the idea to Haikatake, who accepted them and ordered an engineer party with a single company of the 124th Infantry to create a trail to the area. On October the 15th, the 17th Army ordered the artillery commander of the 17th Army, Major General Tadashi Simiyoshi, to distract the Americans at the coastal corridor. He would have at his disposal the 17th Army's heavy artillery and five battalions of infantry. The 2nd Division with three regiments of infantry would make a jungle march to attack up the east bank of Lunga to strike Henderson Field on X Day, set for October the 22nd. Anyone getting deja vu? The 1st Battalion of the 228th Infantry alongside an engineer company would become the new Coley Detachment and land at Coley Point to hit what was essentially a made-up airfield. Lieutenant General Murayama would take the Sendai Division over Mount Austin to vault over the upper reaches of the Lunga, along a route being called the Murayama Road. Thus, the order of battle called for three striking paths. The left-wing unit under Major General Nasu leading the 29th Infantry Regiment, the right-wing unit under Major General Kawaguchi leading the 230th Infantry, and both wing units would share elements of the 3rd Division Motor Battalion alongside some anti-tank and mountain gun units. Murayama would lead the 16th Infantry Regiment as a reserve. Nasu's men would begin their march at 2 p.m. on October the 16th, followed by Kawaguchi and then Murayama. The operations officer, Colonel Matsumoto, announced October the 20th to be X-Day instead of the 22nd, to encourage a rapid march. The chief of staff, Colonel Tameoki, ordered the commanders to be extra vigilant to preserve utter secrecy. This meant no cooking fires, and the soldiers would be living on crackers. Kawaguchi began to issue leaflets telling the forces that while the enemy relied upon its heavier firepower, the Japanese would nullify this by using darkness, jungle, and the ever-trusty bayonet. General Hayakatake moved his HQ to the Murayama Road and sent Colonel Tsoiji over to Murayama with instructions. Tsoiji was told while they preferred the attack to take place on October the 20th, that it was absolutely necessary that the Sendai assault be carefully readied prior. It sounds like the Japanese were taking some lessons from Bloody Ridge. Thus, X-Day would be adjustable, based on Tsoiji's estimation of the situation. Nasu's left wing got off his plan on October the 16th with a ton of ammunition and 12 days rations for each soldier. The gunner crews had to disassemble the artillery pieces and carry it by hand. The Maruyama Road was a small trail, around 20 to 24 inches wide, tunneling through the jungle trees. The Japanese had to navigate by compass whenever they ran into any obstacles or detours. The weight of their weapons, especially the poor guys carrying their artillery equipment, would often sink in the mud as they marched, greatly diminishing their speed. When they reached the Lunga River on October the 18th, they chose a chest-deep fording point. They did not dare cross until after sunset to evade American airmen. Tsuji that night reported to HQ that there was no signs that the Sendai March had been discovered by the Americans. He estimated it would take four more days to complete battle preparations. Thus, X-Day was pitched for October the 22nd. The 17th Army sent word to Rabaul, notifying them that a third of the supplies landed by the high-speed convoy had been destroyed, but that, quote, The victory is already in our hands. Please rest your minds. On October the 19th, good news came in from the 17th Army. There were reports that the Marines were bolstering their western perimeter, indicating Samiyoshi's feint was working. By sunset of the 19th, the Sendai units were four miles north of the Lunga Ford, and on that night, they began to sharpen their bayonets. The next morning, Maruyama thought his men were standing only little over a mile short of the planned deployment area, four miles south of Henderson Field. 
but in fact he was actually 8 miles south of it. At noon, he told the men the time of attack would be 6 p.m. on October the 22nd. The left and right wings would advance parallel to the east bank of the Lunga, across the airfield and to the coast near the mouth of the Lunga. Following the left wing would be Mariyama's reserve units. Hayakateki fixed X day for October the 22nd and proclaimed, The time of the decisive battle between Japan and the United States has come. Hayakateki's staff began planning how to handle the American surrender. Sumiyoshi divided his artillery array into two groups, one with 15 150mm howitzers targeting Henderson Field, and the remaining 1,750mm howitzers plus seven field and three mountain 75mm guns and seven 100mm howitzers would support the infantry attacks. A lot of artillery. Semiyoshi also split up his rifle units in two. Colonel Oka led the 124th Regiment, the 3rd Battalion and 4th Infantry, and Colonel Nakaguma led two battalions of the 4th Infantry Regiment. Semiyoshi ordered Oka to cross the Matanikau, south of the One Log Bridge, occupy Mount Austin, then attack north against the American positions on the eastern bank of the river. Nakaguma would move along the coast, spearheaded by the 1st Independent Tank Company. On the 18th, the 150mm batteries opened fire on Henderson Field, while Nakaguma's men made it seem like they were the bulk of the invading Japanese forces. Oka and his men departed from Kokumbona early on the 19th, managing to get just due left of the Mariyama Road by the next day. The Americans reacted by unleashing their own artillery, prompting Nakaguma to say in his despair, One shot from us brings 100 in retaliation. On the evening of the 20th, Nakaguma sent three tanks to draw the American attention near the mouth of the Matanikau. This caused one of the tanks to be damaged. The Americans were buying the bait, because there was little concrete intelligence at the time about the Japanese intentions. One captured map suggested a three-pronged attack by a trio of divisions from the east, west, and south, but no trace of the Japanese presence were there. American air patrols kept coming back empty-handed. The arrival of the 164th Regiment prompted a revision of the defensive perimeter. The easternmost sector was now guarded by the 164th, a place designated to be the most likely for enemy activity. To their left were the 7th Marines over Edson's Ridge. Beyond the Lunga were the 1st Marines and then the 5th. After the recent actions along the Matanikau, Vandegrift decided to leave two battalions in an advanced battle position at the mouth of the Matanikau. The rationale for this was that his Matanikau outpost force could block the government track, the only feasible route for tanks or other wheeled vehicles to move over. By mid-October, a horseshoe defense formation lay upon the Matanikau from the sea to the One Log Bridge. Defending that horseshoe defense was the 3rd Battalions of the 1st and 7th Marines. On October the 21st, the 11th Air Fleet began some raids to assist the offensive. They sent 25 Zeros and 9 bombers, who tussled with 15 Wildcats resulting in 1 Zero and 2 Wildcats being shot down. That same day, the Sendai Division began what they assumed to be a short march into the southern threshold of the enemy. But, believe it or not, the thick jungle caused them to drift off course for the American positions. By nightfall, their certainty that they had reached their departure line for the attack was beginning to wane. Tamiyaki proposed to Mariyama to move X day to October the 23rd, and he agreed. General Thomas Holcomb arrived to Henderson Field during October the 22nd, and he made a tour of the frontline positions. By 1 p.m., a raid of about a dozen Vals and Zeros of the 32nd Air Group began smashing Henderson Field. 29 Wildcats flew up to meet them, downing two Vals. Holcomb's tour led him to a point near Edson's Ridge that Vandegrift pointed out to be, quote, a machine gunner's dream. Meanwhile, just a few miles away, Japanese engineers finished their work extending a trail for the deployment line, and the left wing was gathering there. By the night of October the 22nd, Maruyama reached the deployment line, and the Japanese estimated they were about four miles south of Henderson Field. Many officers had serious doubts that both wings, much less the divisional reserves and artillery units, could be in the planned positions for the attack on the night of the 23rd. But Maruyama would not postpone again. Long after dark, countless Japanese kept marching through the jungle towards their assembly areas. 
Getting those deja vu feelings yet? Haikataki remained confident the Sendai Division would attack on schedule on the 23rd. So he ordered Semiyoshi to secure the right bank of the Matanikau as early as possible on the same day. Haikataki also ordered the Kolei Detachment to sail at noon on the 23rd. Semiyoshi ordered his men to perform the two-pronged attack while Oka would thrust up the eastern bank of the Matanikau, and Nakaguma would jab across the river. The 23rd saw another Japanese wave of 29 Zeros and 16 Bettys hit Henderson Field. The Cactus Air Force sent up a dozen Wildcats and four P-39s to meet them. The American pilots claimed taking down 21 Zeros and two Bettys at the cost of seven Wildcats and a damaged P-39. The actual losses, however, were six Zeros and one Betty. In the early hours of October the 23rd, Japanese soldiers began to slice their own trails going north to hit the American perimeter. Captain Jiro Katsumata in Nasu's left wing wrote this in his diary. I cannot any longer think of anything, the enemy, food, home, or even myself. I am only a spirit drifting towards an undefined, unknowable world. The men had no visual reference points, or decent patrol reports. Basically, they were blindly hacking into the jungle. And it was during these last days, Kawaguchi began to deduce himself from some aerial photographs he had on hand that if he shifted his thrust a bit more to the east, he would be able to hit a less defended spot on the American perimeter. He discussed this idea with Nasu, but there is no documentation on what the other officer thought. By October the 22nd, Kawaguchi believed he had won over the other officers to shift more of his units east, and without receiving proper approval to change the plans, he began to redispose his men without even waiting for orders. This is, as they would say in the military, a big no-no. As Kawaguchi's men swung further east, Nasu's command kept chopping their way north. At 4.45pm, Marayama received a message from Kawaguchi stating the right wing was still stuck in a thick jungle. Kawaguchi only had one of his battalions on hand the night of October the 23rd, the other two were further behind. Kawaguchi of course was continuing to argue that he should push further east, but this would lead to a day's delay, something that was unacceptable to Marayama. Colonel Tamiyoki instructed Kawaguchi by field telephone not to deviate from the original plan of attack, but Kawaguchi retorted, I cannot take responsibility for a frontal attack as a unit commander. Discuss the matter with Maruyama. Well, 30 minutes later, Kawaguchi got another call, stating he would not have to take responsibility for a frontal attack anymore because he was dismissed as a unit commander. Oof. Colonel Shoji of the 230th Infantry would take command, though Shoji protested this, stating, quote, The relief of a commander on the eve of battle was not the way of the samurai. While the Kawaguchi drama was raging on, Nasu's left wing got themselves into position about two miles south of Edson's Ridge. The 17th Army HQ received word from Tseiji that delays would occur because of Kawaguchi's right wing, and they would not be able to fully join the attack that night. Only part of the 16th Infantry were in position. Tseiji added that despite this, the Americans seemed completely unaware and were, quote, They were playing tennis beside the airfield. Hayakatake was forced to postpone X Day to be for October the 24th despite how much it would screw up things with the IGN. Over on the other front, Semiyoshi was doing his task very well. The Americans had yet to find out about the Sendai Division creeping up upon them through the jungle. This is not to say it was because of American negligence, by the way. It had a lot more to do with the fact Matayama's forces were crossing over totally inhabited areas where not even natives were dwelling. Not even Clemens' scouts were in that area. A three-day jungle patrol by scout snipers near the area did not find them. So because of this, the Americans did the obvious. They shifted their artillery positions to the west of the Lunga, looking to eliminate the apparent threat at the Matanikau. For some time, the Marine Command sought to replace the Horseshoe Defenders, the 1st Marines and 3rd Battalion of the 7th Marines, with the 2nd Battalion of the 7th Marines. 
This meant the 1st Battalion of the 7th Marines, led by Chesty Polar, would be alone to hold a 2,500-yard frontage on the southern face of the main perimeter east of the Lunga River, a place that really required two battalions to cover. But they were not expecting an enemy action to come south of the perimeter. At sunrise on October the 23rd, Semiyoshi had to form an attack to support the Sendai's thrust from the south. Oka was experiencing the same issue plaguing Maruyama. His men had swung off the Maruyama road on October the 19th and they ran into some very difficult terrain. The force only ended up reaching the northwest end of Mount Austin at dawn on October the 21st. During the next day, Oka's men only got about half a mile march going because of some really tough jungle and cliff terrain. Oka sent a report at 9am on October the 23rd claiming he was uncertain of the location of two of his three rifle battalions and had marched east to see some higher ground between the main American perimeter and the Matanikau horseshoe. Oka pledged, nonetheless, that he would attack at 3pm. I just want to take a moment here to say, Dave Holland, the guest I interviewed for a former episode on Guadalcanal, and who I might add, I did an entire Medal of Honor series over on my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel. Cough, shameless plug in, sorry about this. Well, Dave has a nickname for Oka that I quite like. It's Bad Luck Oka. Honestly, this poor guy just keeps going through the ringer. He keeps getting lost in jungles, always losing men, and having to show up to a battle with half his forces at the wrong time. It's... It's incredible. And spoilers, it's going to continue. Anyways, Semiyoshi's other commander, Nakaguma, got his forces into place to hit the marine position at the mouth of Matanikau immediately after Oka initiated his assault. At 1.20pm, Semiyoshi ordered Nakaguma to begin his attack at 3pm. But as we have seen now countless times, some delays occurred. The first tank company moved within 200 yards of the American positions by 4pm, with their noisy approach concealed by artillery fire. The infantry companies marched by 5pm, compelling the tankers to wait for them. As the sunlight dimmed, miles away, Tsuiji telephoned his message at 5.20pm to postpone the attack. But that said message failed to reach its intended recipients. Semiyoshi's only means of communicating with Oka and Nakaguma was radio, but the two forces were separated by terrain from another and many of their subordinate units at this point. The delay in communications meant that Oka and Nakaguma received it in piecemeal. By dusk, Japanese artillery fire got more intense upon the Marine Horseshoe defense, prompting Lieutenant Colonel Twinning of the 1st Marine Division to say, It looks like this is going to be a hell of a night. The sound of Japanese Type 97 tanks waddling up the coastal track was heard at last. The first tank was met with a 37mm anti-tank gun. Then a second tank burst out of a hidden trail and smashed right into a marine machine gun position. It then reared on a stump and halted near the foxhole of one Private Joseph Champagne. Joseph snuck a grenade onto the track of one of the sides of the tank, rupturing it. As the tank tried to crawl into a surf, a 75mm gun destroyed it. Some flares were tossed into the sky, allowing for a hail of anti-tank fire which took out the first wave of tanks. Then the same anti-tank guns began to turn the second wave of tanks into smoldering hulks upon a sandbar. Of the 44 men that made up the first independent tank company who went into the fray of battle, 17, including 7 wounded, survived. The Marines fired using 40 howitzers to smash 500 yards east and west of Point Cruz. The Marines could literally hear Japanese soldiers moaning and groaning under the intense barrage. Over 6,000 rounds from the Marine artillery and motors crushed the Japanese infantry attack before it even really got started. After a brief amount of activity near midnight, all was quiet along the Matanikau by 1.15am. The Marines lost two men, with 11 wounded, while the Japanese lost most of their tank company and a ton of riflemen. While Nakaguma's attack fell to pieces, Halsey, Vandegrift, Harmon, Patch, Tolcom, and Turner held a meeting. Vandegrift was concerned with the 1st Marine Division's state. They were riddled with malaria, under constant shelling, and now they were being hit by Japanese attacks again. 
Halsey was drumming his fingers on the table. He looked at Vandegrift and he simply asked, Can you hold? To which Vandegrift said, Yes, I can hold, but I have to have more active support than I have been getting. Halsey replied, You go back there, Vandegrift. I promise to give you everything I have. At first light of October the 24th, the Marines on the Matanikau caught sight of a long column of Japanese. It was Oka's battalions. They were just due left on the Americans' rear position. Despite artillery and aerial bombing, the unit was posing a huge threat to the flank of the rear of the Matanikau horseshoe. With Hanneken gone, Lieutenant Colonel Polar had to stretch his 700-man battalion to cover the entire regimental front, a 2,500-yard sector as I had mentioned. The sector ran from east to west over grassy plain, some very thick jungle, all the way to the southeastern part of Henderson Field. Late on October the 24th, two shocking pieces of intelligence emerged for the Marines. A man who had strayed from the 7th Marine Patrol reported that he had seen Japanese officers studying Edson's Ridge with binoculars. Another scout sniper added that he had seen some cooking fires several miles up the Lunga. But by this point, it was too late to rearrange the American positions. The two wings of the Sendai Division had reached what they assumed was a point just one mile south of the airfield at 2 p.m., and Maruyama set the time for attack to be 7 p.m. Each wing had to begin opening a set of four trails towards the American perimeter, and at 4 p.m. a thunderstorm emerged. The Japanese wadded into waist-high bogs of mud, and when sunset occurred, the clouds stole any moonlight making it completely dark. In the darkness, many units were unable to maintain direction, and within hours of marching through the jungle, countless units did not make contact with the American line. Deja vu indeed. By 9pm, the rain halted, and the moon began to shine some light again. The two wings, both composed of three rifle battalions, each about the same strength as Polar's, were trailing side by side with the American line. Behind them were another three rifle battalions in reserve. But in the chaos, Shoji's right wing strayed onto a northeastern course, and one of the leading elements passed within an earshot of Polar's line, held by one Sergeant Briggs, around 9.30pm. Polar ordered Briggs to withdraw further east and to form up on the main perimeter. Briggs thus moved his force to a sector held by the 164th Infantry. Yet as Briggs' force moved, they paused because of a large body of Japanese, estimated to be an entire battalion, placed close enough for one Japanese soldier to trip over a Marine's helmet on the ground. The next day, Briggs' men took up their new position, but several took days to get there, and three men left unaccounted for, while three others were killed and ten wounded. It seems Shoji's 1st Battalion of the 230th Infantry probably stumbled into Polar's lines at around 10pm, but Polar directed his men to hold fire as long as possible. Meanwhile, in what seems to be the product of a malaria-feverish dream, Colonel Matsumoto, the operations officer of the 2nd Division, called in a report to the 17th Army staff that Henderson Field was in Japanese hands. This prompted the 17th Army on October the 25th to signal out, 2300, Banzai. A little before 2300, the right wing captured the airfield. This was obviously not the case at all. General Nasu's left wing, unlike the right wing, did plunge into battle that night. Their vanguard, led by Captain Jiro Katsumata, found American barbed wire defenses along the flat eastern part of Edson's Ridge at 12.30 a.m., and this drove some rifle fire. Captain Katsumata went forward with some engineers to take apart the barbed wire defenses near two American machine gun emplacements. Katsumata intended to get the barbed wire defense down quietly, but some of his units uttered war cries and then men began leaping upwards, triggering American machine gun fire. Soon machine gun fire and motors rained down upon the force, killing the majority of them just in front of Polar's Company A at 1am. The 9th Company had followed Katsumata just a bit more to the west, and at 1.15am the unit charged straight into the firing lanes of Polar's Company C. Within just 5 minutes, the entire Japanese company was dead. Their deaths were mainly performed by Sergeant John Bassalone, 
and his machine gun section, and it would be only the start to a very long night that would earn the legendary Marine a Medal of Honor. By 1.25 a.m., the American artillery began to smash the left wing, and any Japanese who stood up were cut to pieces by shrapnel. Polar recognized that a major attack was occurring, and he tossed three platoons from the 164th Infantry, who were held in reserve, to rapidly take up a position on the front lines. By 2 a.m., Lieutenant Colonel Robert Hall's 3rd Battalion of the 164th were marching through muddy jungle in torrential rain to get to Polar's section. By 3.45 a.m., Hall allowed his battalion to wisely and willingly be distributed into piecemeals taking up positions along Polar's line. This was a very smart idea, as the men were untested, and better off to be around men who had already seen some action, rather than taking up a position on their lonesome. By dawn, Colonel Furiyama, leading the 29th Infantry, reached the front line. He ran into a lost rifle company and he directed them to join him in a charge. Meanwhile, Captain Katsumata was returning wounded from the barbed wire incident and Furiyama decided to hit that very same area. As they came to the area, artillery fire rained down upon them and only 200 men reached the barbed wire defense. Some Japanese machine gun emplacements had taken up positions firing back at the American ones but now took up bayonets to join Furiyama's charge. At 3.30am, most of the Japanese died over the barbed wire, but 100 men managed to intrude into the American positions led by Furiyama. Furiyama had also ordered the commander of the 2nd Battalion of the 29th Infantry to add some weight to his charge, but by the time the commander got his men into position, it was 4am and the sky was lighting up. The battalion commander led two companies in an assault at sunrise, and they were met with intense fire, checking them at the edge of the jungle. By 7.30 a.m., Natsu decided to withdraw back into the jungle and to prepare for another night attack. With the sunlight came the sight of Japanese corpses littering the front of Polar's center line. During the first hours of sunlight, Marines eradicated some Japanese toeholds, recaptured two machine gun positions, and seized three Japanese machine gun positions that held 37 dead Japanese. Those Japanese that had managed to seep through the American lines were being scattered into little pockets. Furiyama was one of them alongside 10 of his men. Marine patrols killed 67 of these Japanese infiltrators during the day, adding the toll to at least 300 dead Sendai men along the barbed wire front. On October the 25th, Japanese reconnaissance planes came to see if in fact it was true Henderson Field was now theirs. But many of these aircraft were shot down by anti-aircraft fire, giving them a clear answer to their question. The IGN came to perform its part of the action, Admiral Mikawa took the Kohli detachment to its landing point and performed a blockade against American vessels. The IGN also tried to give the IGA a little nudge by adding some naval bombardment of Lunga Point. The Akatsuki earned a shell right into her gun mount from a marine shore battery, forcing the IGN force to back off with a smokescreen as some wildcats came to intercept them. More Japanese aerial raids came about, met by the Cactus Air Force. This time, they were launched from the Carrier Division 2. 12-0 fighters and 12 valves bombed Henderson Field at 3 p.m. to add to the Marines' misery. While the morning of October the 25th was met with a lot of action on the air and seafront, the ground troops were reassessing their situation. They knew there was going to be another attack, so the 5th Marines were deployed to fill some gaps in the left flank of Hanneken's men at the Horseshoe Defense and the main perimeter. Colonel Whaling advised placing most of his troops on the line also. It was obvious to Polar that the Japanese remained massed up in front of his position. Polar's men resettled into the western 1,400 yards of the sector, while Hull's soldiers took up the eastern side, which was 1,100 yards. A sole divisional reserve, the 3rd Battalion of the 2nd Marines, were kept behind Polar and Hull. Over in the Sendai Jungle HQ, the officers recognized a great many of their men had died during the night but that Furiyama had managed to infiltrate the American lines. At 1pm, Maruyama informed his command that the left wing had pierced deeply into the American lines, and that they would resume the attack after dark. He handed over control of the 16th Regiment and the 2nd Engineer Battalion to Nasu. For an hour after 10pm on October the 25th, all the artillery the Sendai Division could muster were bore upon Polar and Hall's positions. From 10 to midnight, a series of flares were shot up as Japanese groups in around 30 to 200 men each began to appear with machine gun fire for cover. In the early morning of the 26th, the 16th Infantry surged forward en masse against Hall's center and left. 
Two 37mm guns of the 7th Marines performed absolute carnage upon the spout of trail, killing over 250 Japanese. Pockets of Japanese infiltrators streamed past Hall's lines, but soldiers and some local 2nd Marines managed to hunt them down. The left wing saw massive casualties. Colonel Hiroyasu of the 16th Infantry alongside most of his officers were dead. Even Nasu himself was mortally wounded. The Sendai Division was fighting like a boxer with only his left hand available, for the right one was missing in action. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly what occurred, but it seems during the afternoon of the 25th, Shoji received some reports that Americans were moving around his right flank. Thus, Shoji pivoted two of his three battalions to cover said exposed flank, and came to the conclusion he could not attack because of the awkward posture. The 2nd Division learnt this at midnight, and based upon Shoji's portrayal of the situation, approved of his actions. The supposed American flank threat to Shoji, however, was completely imaginary. The Japanese attack was not just south of the airfield, as Oka had also entered into the fray. Oka's men had hit the western saddle ridge held by Hanneken's men. At 3am, the Japanese struck Hanneken's front and massed particularly against his F company, raining rifle fire from the trees onto the marines. A machine gun section manned by platoon sergeant Mitchell Page exacted carnage upon the Japanese. Page personally began to alternate machine guns himself as most of his comrades were killed or wounded. Whenever one machine gun was knocked out, Page would dash through gunfire to get to another and through his incredible acts of heroism, he earned a medal of honor. If you want to know more about guys like Bassalone and Page who earned medal of honors, and quite a few others, you can go over to my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I have an entire series dedicated to them. It's about seven episodes long, and honestly, it covers some incredible stories. Real feats of heroism. And it's not me narrating. It's a friend of mine, Dave Holland, who was a former Marine himself, and he has worked for, I think, three years on Guadalcanal, and he's found the exact places these Medal of Honors were earned. By himself, on his lonesome, he found some places that actually no one knows about. Incredible guy, and it's a really interesting set of episodes. Anyways, despite Page's work, at 5am Japanese units, most likely the 3rd Battalion of the 4th Infantry, scaled a steep slope and ejected the survivors of F Company from its crest. They took the ridge, but only for a short time as Major Odell Connolly, the executive officer of the 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines, performed a counterattack using just 17 men, including communication specialists, messmen, bandsmen, a few riflemen, and a cook at 5.40 a.m. They smashed into the Japanese and were joined by elements of Page's company. They showered the Japanese on the ridge with grenades and machine gun fire until 6 a.m. when they counted 98 dead Japanese scattered about the ridge. Another 200 dead Japanese littered the ravine and the trails due south of the ridge. The 2nd Division HQ were clenching, awaiting word on how the attack was going, and it would arrive just before dawn. The attack had all but failed. The left wing took horrible losses, the right wing was guarding against an invisible enemy, and now Maruyama lacked any more reserves. Maruyama notified the 17th Army HQ alongside Saiji. The 2nd Division could not hope to break the American lines in the present condition. At 8am, Hayakotake ordered a halt to the attack, and during the night of October the 26th, the defenders readily repulsed what they thought were new attacks, but in fact were just the 29th Infantry trying to recover their wounded men. Precise figures are hard to gauge, but the Marines reported on October the 26th that there was 86 killed and 192 wounded amongst the ranks. Polar's battalion lost 26 dead, 34 wounded. Hall's? 164th suffered 19 killed and 50 wounded. Losses along the Matanikau were around 14 dead, 13 wounded for Hannigan's men, and 2 dead and 11 wounded for McKelvney's. The Japanese losses were simply terrible. The 29th Infantry Regiment reported 553 dead and 479 wounded, amongst its 2,554 men. The 16th Infantry were expected to be around the same type of numbers. The 164th Infantry alone buried 975 bodies, it's reported. The 4th Infantry Regiment were battered at the mouth of the Matanikau. Oka lost 300 men in front of Hanneken's Ridge. The 1st Marine Division estimated 2,200 Japanese had died. On top of the massive deaths, 
The failure of the attack was a severe psychological blow to the already physically weakened 17th Army. They were starving, living off small amounts of rice, a bit of soybean paste and some crackers. Many debilitated so much they walked with canes. The 17th Army concluded the attack failed because of a lack of air cover, short supplies and hampering of planning because they had to work around the IGN's scheduled operations. Commander Omai of the IGN offered a different analysis of why the attack failed. He pointed out the 17th Army's underestimation of terrain difficulties to be at fault. He also listed Mariyama's chronic illness, which was neuralgia, Kawaguchi's chronic insubordination, Oka's chronic indifference to any orders, and Nasu's complete incompetence as contributing factors. Yeah, the IGA and the IGN were simply the best of friends. Furiyama also provided another perspective on the defeat. His men had indeed infiltrated and wandered for several days inside the American perimeter. Then on October the 29th, he had to try and escape, but most of his men were killed and Furiyama ended up taking his own life. The Marines found a diary on him which contained passages where Furiyama condemned his own failures and had a last message for Maruyama. It stated this, We must not overlook firepower. I am going to return my borrowed life today with little interest. The period between September the 27th to October the 26th also marked a clear phase in the aerial struggle over Guadalcanal. The Cactus Air Force claimed to have destroyed 113 Zeros, 62 twin-engine bombers, 10 VALs, 8 Kates, 3 floatplanes, and 21 biplanes, a grand total of 228 aircraft. The Cactus Air Force losses were around 103 aircraft, 43 Wildcats, 9 P-39s and P-40s, 35 Dauntless, 15 Avengers, and 1 J2F. Despite the incredible efforts by land and air, the battle for the sea would soon see a fourth carrier battle. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about the legendary John Bassalone and Mitchell Page and how they earned their Medal of Honors? I have a seven-part series on many of the Medals of Honor earned on Guadalcanal. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. In what can be quasi-seen as a deja vu of the Battle of Bloody Ridge, the Japanese yet again performed an overly complicated offensive through the jungle, got lost, and messed up the entire thing. Yet the hardship of the Japanese was nowhere near over on Starvation Island.